Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 136, air date June 21st, 2017. Elizabeth Warren, or even those on the left and right, never have to deal with these things. So the kinds of stuff that they bring to us, many times are issues that are just theoretical issues. They're not really the fundamental issues of what people like you know, Sandy face, people like I face every day, and that's why we need not career politicians you know, running, we need actually people who create things, invent things, build things. And that really brings me t- down to what the founders of this country are about. Let's just take a step back. You know, if we look at the founders of America, these people, what's that? The founders of America, if we look back, where did they come from? What, what were they born out of? You know, if you look back in the 16th and 17th century, that was a time of the scientific revolution. Ever remember this? This was when major discoveries were taking place. People like Newton, right? At the same time, you had amazing, enlightened people like Jefferson, Thomas Paine. If you read Thomas Paine's work, it was called The Age of Reason. And if you actually go into it, what the founders of this country were saying was that there is a creator, and he created natural laws, the law of gravity, right? And the goal was that we as human beings were supposed to understand our creator using our mind, our body, and our soul. And there was not supposed to be anyone in between that, right? There wasn't supposed to be a monarch. There wasn't supposed to be nobles. That we had the right to understand God's laws through direct interaction. And as a part of this, what they wanted to create or invent, if you want to think about it, was a completely new experiment called America. And in that experiment, we would have direct connection through that to our creator through some important key attributes. One, each one of us would have to take accountability. Each one of us would have to boldly step into the unknown, take risks, start our own company, start our own innovations, and, and government's role was to keep out of the way. Right? These founders, if you look back at them, who were they? Were any of them career politicians? Who were they? They were soldiers. They were farmers, businessmen, blacksmiths, lawyers, inventors, architects. And their notion was, that was your living. And then you went over here to serve your country in a limited fashion. And then you were supposed to what? Go back to the farm and work. Agreed? That was the founding of America. You weren't supposed to be here for your whole life. This wasn't supposed to be a career job. You weren't supposed to have political consultants who took donations, took 30, 40% commissions. That was not the role of you know, leadership. It was you serve, and you go back, and you create, and you innovate. Agreed? Yeah. Yes. But that's not what we have today, right? And that's why Donald Trump's winning is a very, very important point in human history. Right? It was like a new shot was fired in Lexington. And that has opened up an opportunity for a new American revolution. It's opened up an opportunity for people like me, the son of low-caste Indian untouchables. You know, how many people know what India is about? Anyone been there? Well, let me tell you about India. India has a caste system. Are you familiar with that? Right? And unfortunately, we're sort of heading to that too, with Elizabeth Warren and her likes up on top. Right? They're the quote-unquote the upper caste. Well, I grew up in India, which had a very discreet caste system. People like me were known as the lower caste, or untouchables, or deplorables. So you won't find a lot of Indians like me even here. The fact that my parents made it out of India is one in probably 10 trillion. You know, my great-grandfather, I remember him working in the fields, 93-year-old man, ripped muscularly working. 
When he died, he called everyone together. He said, I'm leaving now. I have no debts. And he left. My grandparents were poor farmers. And out of that, my parents came. It was, again, one in a trillion that they even got educated in India. And then they came here. I was seven years old. Think about this. I land on, in Kennedy Airport as a seven-year-old kid wearing shorts on December 5th, 1970. <laughs> and there was snowfall. You know, it was, a, it was a beautiful day. And the, the couple that picked us up were amazing Americans. They took us to their home. We went to the Salvation Army. That's where we got our jackets, our coats, etc. So that was the America that invited me here. So I love this country. This is the greatest country on this planet. Period. My journey as a seven-year-old began through the public school systems in New Jersey. Patterson, New Jersey. Anyone been there? Yes. One of the poorest cities in the United States. And every year and a half, my parents kept moving. Remember, we didn't have school choice then. So my parents would move, then we went to Clifton, then to Persephone, and then to Livingston. Each one of those were the better school systems. That's how they got school choice. Right? So they earned their money, and they wanted to make, their, make sure their kids got a better education. And I, you know, adored the people I met. You know, my coaches, my teachers, my mentors. These people, many of them had two or three jobs. Right? The curriculum in those days, the teachers actually had power before, before the Department of Education destroyed them. The teachers had the core curriculum, then some of the kids could take an advanced curriculum, right? The teachers were given a little bit of flexibility, and I took advantage of that flexibility. By the time I was 14, I finished up calculus as a 14-year-old kid. I was very motivated, but I wasn't just a nerd. I had my own lawn mowing business. You know, I played baseball. You know, I had, uh, you know, I was, uh, nominated or went to Boy State in the American Legion, and I loved this country. So as a part of that whole process, by the time I was 14, some important developments took place. Anyone remember what we have today as the iPhone? Yeah. Well, in those days, you had mainframe computers that would probably fit this entire building. Yeah. Yeah. And just like the founders were futurists looking far ahead, and just like my parents were futurists, there were some other futurists. There was a professor at New York University, and he knew that one day we would need skilled computer programmers. That was a new term in 1978. And so 40 students were given the opportunity across the United States to apply to a special program at New York University, one of the elite institutions of the time. And I was fortunate to be one of those 40 students selected. And as a part of that, I got to go to New York and learn seven programming languages in a Navy SEAL-like military program. My dear mom would drop me off at Newark Pat Station at 5 in the morning, and I would take the train in, about an hour train ride or more, into New York. Remember, it's a 14-year-old kid. Most parents are afraid to send their kids down the street these days. And in that university, I learned seven programming languages, graduated top of the class. And after that, it was a very interesting situation. What do I do? I have a few humanities courses left, and I was going to get bored. And my mom who was working then at Rutgers Medical School. You know the school, it's in Newark. One of the, again, one of the poorest cities in, uh, in the country. Very few people would even go to Newark. And in that institute was another great mentor, a guy by the name of Dr. Les Michelson. Now you have to remember, 1978, who used computers? It was typically old guys with white lab coats. And what was the role of women in 1978? What were the roles women could have? Secretary? Nurse. Nurse? Teacher teacher or housewife, right? Well, in that institute, I was given an amazing challenge. You know, in those days, how did people communicate? They had this old thing called the inner office mail system. Remember that? 
some, a secretary had a <coughs> desktop, she had an inbox, an outbox, she had folders, right? She'd write this thing called a memo of carbon paper, remember this? She'd write it to, from, subject, she'd put it in an envelope, tie it together, shove it in a pneumatic tube, and it got circulated around. I was asked to convert that entire system to the electronic form. It was a future idea, futuristic. I called it email, wrote 50,000 lines of code, used to work until two in the morning. And what I did was convert that entire system to electronic form that had never been done before. Every feature we see today in every email system. Now you gotta understand, the lawmakers over in Washington didn't understand what software was. They thought software was sheet music. Okay, so there's no legal ways to protect software. Now I didn't know about this. I went on to MIT in 1981. I uh, was elected student body president. And in the front page of MIT, there was a note about three very notable students about this one guy inventing this email system. So the president of MIT said, Shiva, it's too bad you can't patent software. You should copyright it. So I wrote away, had to send my 50,000 lines of code. It wasn't simply putting a C with a circle. And on August 30th, 1982, this American teenager gets issued the first US copyright for email, recognizing me as the inventor of email. That's what happened in August of 1982. The reason I shared that story is that email did not get invented in a big institution. It occurred in Newark, New Jersey, in the ecosystem of amazing parents, incredible teachers, and a mentor. That's where innovation takes place. Yes, innovation takes place in big institutions, but there's a lot of damn smart people all over this country. And I've gone through that journey. I went on to MIT, did four degrees, created many, many other things, but most importantly, what I'm proud of is I started seven companies, created hundreds and hundreds of jobs in Massachusetts. And as Sandy has shared with you, it's a lot to start a company, right? It's a lot to manage employees. I'd really like to give every politician six employees to manage. <laughs> see what they do. It's a tough job. I share all this journey with you because my journey is not that different than everyone in this room. None of this would have been possible without this great country. I couldn't have done this in India, could I? No way. Could I have done this in any other country? Unlikely. But it was America that provides us these opportunities. It's America that gave this young kid and his family the opportunity to excel. It's America that brings us together. Now, if we look at what Elizabeth Warren stands for, it's a complete antithesis of this. She believes that she knows better, right? But I know we know better. She believes that she's the intermediary, like Queen Elizabeth or something, in between us and our creator. That her policies and her notions of what is right are based on her mental thinking, nothing to do with reality. So as I mentioned, look at Dodd-Frank. What did Dodd-Frank do? The, the outward PR was, we're gonna go fight the big banks. But as I mentioned, it destroyed the wellspring or the thing that really funds innovation. You know, what makes America great is most other countries have what? Four major banks, right? America has used to have 8,000, 10,000 community banks. If you want to start a business or I want to, you typically have a relationship with your local banker. And that relationship is what funds you, gives you loans, and it starts. Well, under her watch, under Dodd-Frank, 1,200 small banks have been destroyed. Okay, so we as small business people know how this affects us. Politicians really don't know this. You look at, you know, she's running under this new slogan, what do we want to do? We want uh, healthcare as a basic human right. Have you heard this? Yeah. Well, I don't think healthcare is a basic human right. Choice and freedom is a basic human right. And what has Obamacare actually done? Go back to, uh, you know, my sister went to Harvard. She's a small doctor. She doesn't do medicine anymore. It's too much regulations. 
tens and tens of thousands of doctors who are the place that you get primary care. You know where a doctor actually looks at you, tells you to open your tongue, touches, you know, that kind of care, not just looks at the computer and types away. Yeah. That care has been destroyed, right? So those doctors have had to join large hospitals. And by the way, if you go into a hospital, there's a two out of five chance you're going to get sick. Right? So this is the health care that these people have delivered to us by destroying small uh, doctors. And then finally, how many of us had small businesses when the big Anderson Enron thing took place? Anyone? Remember the whole uh, Sorbanes-Oxley piece? Well, when you look back at that, they said, oh, the big, big guys are the ones, Anderson is the one who did all the auditing errors. Right? Therefore, we need, to do, we need to regulate them. So what happened was guys like me, who are paying 15 or 10 or 15 grand for audit fees, it went up to 50 grand. That's what really happened. So the whole scam here is act as though you're going after the big guys, very interesting policies, and that career politicians debate this, but at the end of the day, they have no idea of the reality of what it takes to do businesses, right? What it takes to create jobs. One of the most important things when you distill all of this down, you know, Frankly, it's easy like monkeys to raise and lower taxes. Obviously, everyone in this room is for lower taxes, right? But yeah. every year you're talking about raising and lowering taxes. But what really is a real issue? We need high-paying jobs, right? We need high-paying jobs. And if you do the simple math, the U.S. economy is based on a $4 trillion cash flow. $4 trillion comes in, 20% roughly of the 20 trillion dollar GDP, and with that four trillion dollars, we, we try to run this economy. 20% goes to healthcare. Even if you take 1% of that 20, tri 20 trillion in debt, you're paying that 200 billion every year, and we're not able to do it. So no matter what way you cut it, the four trillion that, used to, that, that is used to run our economy, guess where that comes from? Guess where it comes from? 80% of that only comes from 10% of our citizens. Let me repeat that. 80% of our cash flow comes from 10% of our citizens. Yeah, you can let raise and lower taxes, but that's really not gonna solve the problem, is it? Really do the math. What we really need to do is we need to have more people working, higher paying jobs, and if you wanna pay them tax, great, but the issue is we don't have enough cash flow. If you run a business, let's say you only have 10 customers, and you keep manipulating your expenses, it's not gonna work, you need to get more customers. In Massachusetts, for every 17 skilled jobs, guess how many people are ready to take on those jobs? One, one person. You guys know this? For every 17 skilled job openings, which are there, there's only one skilled person. And no one talks about this. And this has been going on for decades. None of these career politicians have no idea of addressing it because they've never had to deal with the fundamental issue. You or I have a business. The biggest thing that I lose sleep over is can the guy I hire do the job? I don't know if Alan's here. Is Alan back there? So, if you talk to Alan, he went to school, has $40,000 in debt. He says, Sheila, I have no skills. Yeah. We are graduating people from our big institutions. Education has, frankly, become a scam. So when they say a student loan, you as parents, you know, do all these loans, and the money is, frankly, not a student loan. It never hits a student's bank account. It goes from the bank over to the university, and the universities keep raising their tuitions, right? There is no incentive for universities to lower their tuition. So what we have right now is a bunch of millennials educating who can't fix anything. They're not plumbers, they're not electricians, they're not network engineers, and we have 17 job openings and only one person is showing up for that. And that's what I lose sleep over. 
I hire an employee. Wow, can this guy write an email? <laughs> right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Can this guy actually show up to work on time? Did he learn basic skills? Does he know how to use Excel? I don't know if you know this. This is what we deal with. Over here, politician, raise and lower taxes. Yeah, that's, a, that's an easy one, okay? Don't build your whole freaking campaign around that. Let's talk about what we actually need. We need more low-tech schools. It should be unleashed everywhere. We have online education. You know, edX, Khan Academy, these are amazing technologies. You can take amazing education and deliver it to the poorer schools. So here we have this discussion of school choice and not school choice, and that becomes a bloody issue. But we're not talking about innovation and deploying technologies. You take the Paris Accords. You know, if you go to my website, I've completely broken it down and show why Trump did the right thing. And the liberals and the right wing will discuss all day whether global warming is taking place or not. That's not the issue. The issue is if you look at global warming, today, just China, 11 billion carbon tons of pollution. Right now, carbon 11 billion. What did the Paris Accord allow them to do? Exactly. By 2030, they can go to 22 billion. Yeah. Anyone been to China? Yeah. You can't freaking breathe. You get out, you have to wear air masks, you can't see the sky, and you're telling me now you're going to be able to dump 11 billion more and this is a good thing. India will be able to go from 2 billion to 4 billion. The reality is we need innovation. Because China and India, every person there wants two cars, and who are we to tell them they can't do that? Right? And so the whole Paris Accords, the liberal feel-good thing, but more importantly, the $100 billion green fund was actually going to pay off money for all these corrupt local politicians to join the Paris Accords, and the guy who's really going to get make money on this is Al Gore, okay? It's basically, you're going to pollute more, and they're going to make trillions on this. Now, if you go to my website, we've detailed that. It went viral on the internet, but I know how to articulate this. I know how to present it for everyday people, and I know how to fight. As Jay said, you know, I've been a fighter all my life. I had to fight the caste system in India. My parents had to fight coming here. You know, uh, five years ago, when my mom was dying with pulmonary fibrosis, she left a beautiful suitcase. I made tons of money, by the way, uh, and I'll come to that. But I never made a money off email. I never wanted credit for it. Never even thought about it. But five years ago, my, my amazing mom was dying with pulmonary fibrosis and a beautiful Samsonite suitcase. She had, beautifully packed all those materials. You know, the computer code, the tapes, the copyright notice. Time Magazine reviewed all this. In November 2011, they wrote a beautiful article, The Man Who Invented Email. Three months later, the Smithsonian contacted me. They wanted all my materials. On February 16, 2012, it went into the Smithsonian. A Washington Post reporter wrote a beautiful article, Shiva Idre honored as the inventor of email. Now, you would think this should be a great day for the American dream. What happens is the mainstream media went ape, okay? Because it was also as though a new skull had been found in Africa, which reset the origin of humanity. Because during those years that I didn't promote it, they'd rewritten the history that it, as though it came out of the military-industrial-academic complex, which Eisenhower warned us about. The thought of a 14-year-old American kid inventing email in Newark blows their mind. But I was an amazing, you know, model minority, I was on the front page of MIT three times for many other things. But when I said email was done before I came to MIT, you see that exposes the real insidious nature of racism. That's the real nature of racism. They want you to be on the plantation, they wanted me to be a good Indian, but I wasn't willing to play, homie wasn't willing to play that game, okay? I wasn't. You know, they, uh, Gawker Media, you know of them? Yeah. Gawker Media wrote horrible articles, 
did no research, fake news, and I kept looking for lawyer after lawyer to go after Gawker. Last year, if you remember, Hulk Hogan sued them. They put out his, his, his sex video, and he won a $140 million case, and then they appealed it. I went, got the same lawyer. We filed $35 million law, law, uh, lawsuit against uh, Gawker Media. Within 30 days, they declared bankruptcy. And the karma of it was I was appointed to be the chairman of the bankruptcy committee over Gawker. <laughs> so, so, you know, I learned a lot about bankruptcy law. And uh, this is what Elizabeth Warren, by the way, our expertise is. We sold Gawker Media to Univision. We forced them to pull my three articles. All their liberals were like, this is against First Amendment. No, the First Amendment does not protect false statements, libel, and defamation. Does it? Exactly. It doesn't. And you have to fight that. The First Amendment was people like you and me to be able to write articles against our government. It wasn't intended for billion dollar companies, hundred million dollar companies to make money off clickbaiting. That's what they did. So we won that case. They gave me a million dollars. Before that, let me talk to you about another fight. Everyone heard of an evil company called Monsanto? Yeah. By the way, I don't know if you know, Elizabeth Warren raised her hand and said yay to the Monsanto Protection Act. She supported Monsanto. And here's a big opportunity for us, because we have all these Sanders people who are disenfranchised, but they do not know that Elizabeth Warren supported the Monsanto Protection Act. That act allows the executive branch to overrule federal judges if they find that genetically engineered crops are unsafe for us. Okay? One of the most recent companies I'm running is a new company which can model the molecular pathways of the human cell on the computer. Using this technology, we're able to discover drugs faster and cheaper. We, in fact, in 11 months, discovered a drug for pancreatic cancer without killing any animals, got allowance through the FDA, and since then, we've spun off seven companies in Massachusetts. Wow. Using that technology, we went and looked at all of the GMO stuff, because I was at MIT in 2014, there was a big article saying, buy fresh, buy GMOs. It was making fun of the buy fresh, buy local movement. Yeah. I'm wondering, why the hell is MIT supporting Monsanto? And what you find out is the Gates Foundation, all of these liberal institutions, want to flood us with GMOs because they make tons of money. Monsanto has polluted our, our crops, it's destroyed, our, frankly, our crops. Uh, I don't know if you know glyphosate Roundup. Glyphosate is the active ingredient. It's now been shown ultra-low levels cause fatty liver disease. No wonder 80 million Americans are obese. We eat crap. Monsanto makes money off crap. Okay? And on the other hand, they genetically engineer crops that are resistant to their herbicide. They own both sides. So in 2014, I used our scientific engine. We exposed Monsanto. We wrote five major articles. This was doing scientific activism. We published them. We went head on head. We exposed a professor at Florida who was claiming that he had nothing to do with Monsanto, chairman of the University of Florida Department of Agriculture. A FOIA was issued on him by another guy I know. 4,000 emails came out showing him taking money from Monsanto. This is how academics work, and a lot of them are in the 10-mile radius from here. These guys are the modern priesthood. They live in it, and this is what Elizabeth